This Advent season, we are taking uh, some weeks to look at a few of those psalms that have those words, How long, O Lord? As a time of, again, this time is one of, of, of expressing our longing, our waiting, uh, sometimes even with tears. And so that's what we're looking at with these psalms. How long, O Lord, until you come again? And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 80 this morning. Before we, we turn to uh, reading the word here, let's, let's first pray. Lord God, would the words of this psalm that we are looking at, these, uh, these words, these prayers that are not only the prayers of your people, but are, are inspired by you, they are your words, would you make them uh, alive to us this morning? Would we find our own experiences in them so that we too might cry out, how long, O Lord, but with the hope that the psalmist has here this morning, the hope in, in who you are, the hope in your salvation, and the sure promise of restoration that you do give to us in Christ Jesus. We pray that he would not be in the background, but that he would be in the forefront here as the one who is the fulfillment of all of your promises, the one whom we all need this morning desperately. We pray for the one who is preaching this morning too, that you would uphold him in weakness and in his own sin, that you would forgive him as well. May your spirit go forth this morning here in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Psalm 80. Uh, Pay careful attention because this is the word of God. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your faith shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your faith shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Amen. Is there a sad song that you particularly like? Or even if we are melancholy people, most of us have a sad song that we like for various reasons. They express longings for better times that are remembered. 
or for moments in life when it seemed like you were on top of the world and now everything has caved in. And oftentimes they express confusion. How could this happen? Why? But many times also they're full of guilt. It's because of me. I did this and I'm the primary cause. And when we sing along to sad songs, we're not just singing by ourselves in the car or in the shower or wherever else it is that you like to sing. Because even when we are alone and we're singing, we're still singing with another. We're singing with the, with the original artist. Right? There are certain songs that we listen to and we sing to match the mood and the situation that they're in. How many high school boys have sang songs of unrequited love and rejection when they themselves were feeling that same thing, right? Or how many times have people in certain seasons of, of grief turned to various songs as comfort? See, when we sing along with sad songs, we are expressing our solidarity with the artist. We are singing with them. In one sense, as we're singing with them, it's a communal lament. And our song this, or this morning, our psalm, is a communal lament. In a way, as it was sung, as it was prayed, as we still sometimes do, sing it or pray it, we sing along and we pray along with those who are suffering. And this is a communal lament, this psalm, Psalm 80. Well, what does that mean, communal lament? Simply this here, it's a collective cry out to God from his people in lamentation and grief. It's a collective cry. It may be that everyone is suffering personally, or it may be that only a part of the people are suffering. But everyone, though, is crying out on behalf of the whole. It's what happens when one part of the body suffers. The entire body, the rest of the body suffers along with it. It's the same sentiment that we find in Romans 12, 15, where the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. See, when there are people who are suffering in the body of Christ worldwide, when there are people who are suffering in our local body here in our congregation, we lament and we mourn not only for them, but we lament and we mourn with them. And Psalm 80 expresses the same sort of communal lament that we have. It's a song where those who are singing may not be suffering in the same way as everyone, as others are, but they are singing in conjunction with them. They're singing in communion with them. Lots of songs have occasions for their, their writing, or they have stories in the background, and this one is no different. And most likely, historically, this is about the time when the foreign power of Assyria came in and were ravaging the northern kingdom and the tribes of Israel. And it's clear here that the focus is only on a few of the tribes that were suffering. We have, in verse 2, we have Ephraim, we have Benjamin and Manasseh. And the cry is for the Lord to stir up his might before them. And here it's a cry that's primarily given in the third person. Not only is it an appeal for God to rise up for these, these three tribes, but it continues by praying for them. The Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them tears to drink in full measure. All right? It's a lament. It's a cry for those who are under those oppressive hands of Assyria. But at the same time, though, there's also this first-person plural identification. Not only them, 
but it's also we, us. Stir up your might for Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Come and save us, it says. And then even in verse 6, even though they are full of weeping, we are being mocked by our neighbors. See, those people singing this psalm, those people raising their laments, those people crying out to the Lord may not be those who are directly experiencing the suffering. But nonetheless, though, they're still compelled to lament and to mourn with them. Being a member of the body of Christ, being a part of God's people is to mourn not only for the body as it suffers, it's also to mourn and pray with them. See, we cannot let people's sufferings and cries be just something that we encounter. It's something that we also need to experience with them by coming alongside them. That's what happens when we embrace being a part of the body. And we see it as a privilege of being united together in Christ by the Spirit. Even the suffering of one person in the body is reason enough for us to lament and to mourn. See, how often do you not only grieve for someone but also grieve with someone. We're praying not only for someone, but praying with them. There's a subtle difference in that. And this includes mourning for and grieving for sin and its presence. What was it that brought about the Assyrian invasion upon these people? In the whole biblical story, it was because of their repeated unfaithfulness to God and because of their ongoing patterns of sin. It was their rejection of the Lord as their God in favor of idols, their oppressive behaviors towards the weak, their self-centeredness and greed. And how seriously does God take that? Enough to shatter them and to bring them to their knees. And they felt the anger of the Lord God of hosts smoking upon them, and it seemed as if the smoke of his nostrils were covering over the incense of their prayers going up. But here, though, still, there is also a communal mourning and a communal grief for those sins. Some of those people singing this here may not have been personally responsible, or they may not have taken part in those sins, but they are still crying out in lament for the sins of their fellow brothers and sisters. They raise up their prayers of intercession amid the unfaithfulness of the nation. They grieve collectively for sin, And they grieve for their collective sin. See, communal lament doesn't just cry out when part of the whole is suffering or is being held down oppressively. It also cries out when part of the whole is in sin or when part of the whole are those doing the oppressive acts. Is that how you view sin amid the church? That when we come face to face with it in our own midst, it requires lament. And not to excuse it, not to say that it can't be us. No, we lament. We grieve for its presence. It spreads. It defiles. It hurts people. And it casts shame upon the name of Jesus Christ who gave himself for the sins of the church. And just as one, the suffering of one person is enough for us to lament, the sins of just one person within the congregation are enough for us to also lament. But lament, though, without a cry for help, lament without a plea is just empty complaint. What turns a cry from merely complaining and actually into deep biblical lament is the plea for restoration. 
It's the acknowledgement that it isn't supposed to be this way. That there's something that's fundamentally wrong or broken and it cries out to God for help to fix it. And the song here, the psalm, introduces the, the refrain that we see over and over. Restore us, O God. Let your faith shine that we may be saved. Set everything right among us. But restoration, though, isn't just experiencing good welfare or just having our suffering ended. It's fixing what's within. It's making us right inside, and it's restoring our hearts. And the restoration that they're pleading for is one which displays the favor of the Lord looking down upon them and causing his face to shine upon them in his glory and his might. What is it that dispels the darkness within our hearts? It's light. It's the light of the glory of God, giving us something more beautiful to look at and to draw us towards than the darkness of our own sins. And what is it that gives comfort amid our sufferings? It's the face of God. It's his smile looking down upon us in favor and in joy. And so this is communal lament. It's crying out collectively as God's people for the sake of the whole. Yet we also can't forget the one to whom we cry. It's not just communal lament, but we can't forget the shepherd amid our lament. We often take it for granted that the Lord is a shepherd, right? And we forget the beauty of that so many times. Perhaps it's because a lot of us are overly familiar with Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even if you're here this morning, you're not too familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard that somewhere. But have you ever considered the implications, though, of what it means that the Lord God is a shepherd to his people? It means that he's there alongside them. He walks with his people. He guides them. He feeds them. He nurtures them. See, God isn't uncaring. He's not aloof. He's not far off, even if you're questioning where he is or who he is. He is near, and he comes near to his people, as a shepherd does to his sheep. But oftentimes, this seems quite the opposite in our times of lament, and when the suffering and the despair sets in. And it's led many to to conclude that even if there is a God, he must be perpetually angry. Just like in verse 4, God is angry with his people. How long will you continue to be angry with their prayers? How long will you not listen to us? But note though here that even though his anger burns against them and their sin, has he rejected them? Is the Assyrian assault and the trampling that they are experiencing here, is that a sign that God is no longer with them? Well, how does it start? Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. Even though Joseph was one of the sons of Abraham there, Joseph himself did not have a tribe coming from him. But his two sons did, Ephraim and Manasseh that we see just after that. See, they're under the foot of Assyria, but the Lord is still their shepherd. And that's why they lift up their plea to him in lament for God to hear, because he is still a shepherd to his people And shepherds care about their sheep. Just because we walk down paths of darkness doesn't mean that he's left us. In Psalm 23, as it says, sometimes the Lord leads us through green pastures and he has us go along paths near the fresh waters. 
And those are beautiful times, aren't they? But all roads aren't like that. There are some amazing, incredible drives that we have in this country, especially the western United States. Then the Valley of the Sun Road and Glacier National Park, uh, driving out through uh, the tunnel to the, 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 the valley floor in, in Yosemite. Uh, we've really taken to Interstate 84 down, uh, down the Columbia River Gorge. But one of my own personal favorites is the drive down the eastern Sierras from Highway 395 from Reno. And you go south along Tahoe and you hit Bishop. You eventually end up in Lone Pine and, and Whitney Portal. I think about beautiful paths. That's a beautiful path for me right there. But bookended, though, on either side of that, north of Reno and south of Lone Pine, are really some desolate places, literal rough stretches of road. You have, like, the road itself is very bumpy in those places, but it's also north of Reno is high desert. South of, of Lone Pine is the Mojave Desert. All right, so life isn't always beautiful paths and green pastures. You drive along some of those places that you think are those beautiful pastures, but you know what? Those beautiful paths are bookended on either way with some pretty desolate places, and life is passing in and out of those places. Sometimes they're beautiful paths, but sometimes we exit from them into some barren, desolate wilderness. And sometimes, though, our paths are worse. Sometimes our paths lead directly through the valley of the shadow of death's deep darkness, as Psalm 23 says. And we blink in the dark. Where is he? But meanwhile, though, he's still leading us. He doesn't send us into the darkness to find our own path, but he is there walking alongside us. He's not absent just because it's dark. And he's no more or less absent, or more or less present than when we are in the times of the green pastures. He's still leading us. He's still walking alongside of us. What are our comforts? His rod and his staff, his protective care that he wields, and his guiding shepherd's crook to keep us from wandering away too far in the dark. Our cries to be restored go up to the Lord, God, who is the shepherd. And his restoration comes to us in the form of a shepherd. Comes to us in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. The one who knows his sheep by name and they know him. The one who laid his life down willingly for the sheep on the cross. And then he took it back up again in the resurrection. The one who leads us even while he is ascended. Because he really isn't absent. He's with us by his spirit. And his care, his protecting rod, his comforting staff comes by his spirit who's at work among us. And because he laid his life down for the sheep, there's no way that he will ever leave us or forsake us. He will lead us all the way until the end, through the green pastures, through the shadowy vales, all the way to the feast in his house at the end. So that cry here that we have, let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the kind face of Jesus shining upon us in his glory It's the Jesus who listens to our prayers and our laments. And yet even though the Lord knows us and the Lord hears our prayers, we also, though, still lament. We lament amid our ruin. And that especially comes when we think about lament being communal. Because the ruin which we face is also communal. 
The psalm here moves into the story about a vine, a special vine that was planted and tended by God, where he carefully removed it from where it was, and then he formed a pleasant, well-watered place, and he transplanted it there. And its roots grew deep. It expanded across the field and all the way up to the Euphrates River in the north, all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea. And its offshoots grew so tall and its foliage so dense that it shaded even the the tallest mountains and the trees. Of course, we read that and it's not a literal vine. It's a picture for Israel who God pulled up from bondage in Egypt and then planted in the land of Canaan after he cleared the land through Joshua. The kingdom expanded and it grew under the kingship of David to being a nation to be reckoned with. And then it grew and grew and it flourished majestically under Solomon, a place of glittering gold. But more importantly, the glory and the righteousness and the goodness of the Lord were seen there. And at its height there, you see... Israel as a kingdom that was the envy of all the nations. A place where all the known world came to and was amazed. People from all over the ancient Near East. People from Africa. People from far off exotic places marveling not only at the wealth of the kingdom, but marveling at the wisdom of the king and the righteousness that was seen there. And a place where the glory of God shone forth from the temple so that the, the righteousness and the beauty and the justice there that was seen was a way to dazzle the nations and to be an attractive draw to the God of righteousness and beauty and of justice. There it was right there. It was the envy of the nations. And yet, why do you grow vines? Why do we have vineyards lining the landscape here of our county? for fruit. Not just fruit, but for good fruit. Vine growers spend meticulous time and days and seasons pruning the branches, checking on the vines, working the ground in order to produce not just fruit, but good fruit, the best fruit. Have you ever gardened and put all your spare time and effort into trying to get those, those tomatoes and those peppers to grow just right, and then you end up with little fruit? Or bad fruit. I've felt that. I like the garden, but I'm not by any means an expert gardener. And it's disappointing. But what about the the vine grower whose livelihood depends upon a bountiful harvest of good fruit? They spent the whole year prepping for the harvest, only to go out and to find a few shriveled clusters of grapes. Well, we might feel disappointed if we're gardening. But it's far more than just disappointment, though, for the one who's growing the vines. And the Lord planted Israel, his vine. He tended them. He made them flourish. He saw this great big vine covered in foliage. Oh, coming town to harvest. What do we find? No fruit. No righteousness. No justice. No extolling his beauty and his majesty. Nothing that would compel the other nations to come and behold the works of the Lord. Instead, it was the opposite. They took on the customs and the idols and the practices of their neighbors. They replaced the joy of bearing fruit of righteousness with their own unfaithfulness. And so the Lord was livid. He was more than just merely disappointed. He broke down the outer walls of the vineyard. He exposed it to the other nations, uh, passing by and plucking at it as they went. 
the boars of the field coming and tearing at it, threatening to uproot it, the insects and critters nibbling away at its foliage. Is that harsh? Maybe. But you need to look at it, though, from God's perspective. This wasn't just a place where he wanted his name upheld. It was how he wanted it upheld. He wanted it to reflect his character, his holiness, his justice, his peace, his goodness. He wanted the other nations to see his character and to be brought in by it. But now, though, it's all ruined. Instead, because the the fruit that Israel bore was unfaithfulness to their Lord, it was unrighteousness, and it was oppressing the downtrodden in their midst. And it brings them to lament, Lord, I wish we had done better. God wants his kingdom to be filled with righteousness so that those outside can get a glimpse of what it looks like in concrete terms and a glimpse of who he is in concrete terms. What does God's justice look like? What does his righteousness look like? What does it look like for him to be holy and set apart? Take a look at his kingdom. And take a look at the people who are in his kingdom. The church is to be a place full of righteousness. It is to be attractive and the envy of outsiders due to how we uphold the justice and the righteousness of God. Yet we failed. So often we fail at it corporately. In fact, to our shame. Sometimes those outside the church have done a better job of it than us in certain instances. We don't become the envy of the nations. We become the butt of their jokes. No one wants to come and be a part of us. No one wants anything to do with our God. And the church as a whole seems to to cast constant shame upon ourselves and upon God by the things that we say or by the things that we do in secret and inevitably and rightfully get exposed. And so when that happens, though, how do we weep? How often do we weep like God's people do in this communal lament? How often do we cry out for God's favor to be upon us and for him to restore us, for him to rescue us as a whole and save us, even though there are some individuals casting shame upon God? Or do we just point the finger at them and that's it, that they're the reason why the church is so awful? Or we gossip. But how often do we just sit and weep Because the attributes of our God are not seen among us. Why can't we just be a faithful church now? Jesus, why can't you just come back right now and make us who you're supposed to be? I want this this waiting time to be over. We are longing for your righteousness. Why can't you just set everything straight in the moment right now? Crush not only the sins in the world, but uproot the sins here in your people that continue to grow like weeds among the branches of your vine. Why, Lord God? Well, once more, though, we must come to the refrain in this song, the refrain amid all of the lament. Restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. See what's happened to your people? to your vine, see what's happened to us collectively. We need restoration. The refrain of this song over and over just shows us how important it is. Remember these words in lament. And then the final section of this psalm in verses 14 to the end here, it's an expansion of this theme of restoration. It's a cry here of what it looks like then for us to be restored. And restoration often looks like God setting his people right. 
And oftentimes we only consider that, though, in terms of being in the correct position or of good welfare in life. And that's certainly part of, of the cry here. There's been, they've been lamenting the ruined vine of God's people. They've de- been desperate amid the tears that have flooded their eyes. And part of God's plan to restore his people is by bringing goodness into our everyday lives and by mending all, that, um, all the brokenness that we experience on a daily basis and with one another. But that's not the root problem that these people, that these people faced. What put them there in the first place? It was their unfaithfulness. God's restoration from our broken situations doesn't happen apart from his restoration of our unfaithfulness. As they cry out, restore us, O God, they're also begging that he would renew their hearts and turn them back into being a faithful and obedient people. Verse 18, at the very end of this extended vision of the Lord's restoring work, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we'll call upon your name. Make us a faithful people. Turn us into a people who love what you love. Allow your love for justice and righteousness and mercy to be seen in us. And here they are, crying out that Israel is broken down and busted all the way down to its core, down to its heart. A restoration project like this is more than just putting up some new drywall slapping some new paint on it. It's more than even just a remodel. It requires a whole new rebuilding project. And that's exactly what we see in this promise here. Israel is described not only as a vine, but also as God's son. We have those ideas actually in juxtaposition with each other in verses 14 and 15. The vine, and then God's son as the vine. Or we have also as just the son... In verse 17, it's talking about Israel there. And multiple times in the Old Testament, the Lord refers to Israel as his son, which he drew up from out out of Egypt. Even Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Again, his son, a people who are to embody the holiness, the righteousness, the truth, and the justice of God to restore all the peoples. But despite their failure, God is going to restore them so that they will embody all of that. He's going to enact a rebuilding project, and that rebuilding project is built upon Jesus Christ. God's Son. The Son of God who came, though, as perfect Israel. God's Son in an earthly manner of sorts. The one who came to embody everything that Israel was supposed to do. And the one who did it all perfectly. He was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly faithful. He manifested perfect justice and goodness and holiness. And he still does as he sits ascended on the throne. And even though his people rejected him and they nailed him to a cross, though the nations saw and they were glad and that the good news and the the restoration would go out to people like them. It's his cross that cleanses us from all of our unfaithfulness. It's his faithfulness that given to us that covers over our unfaithfulness. And it's his spirit that renews our hearts to turn them towards loving faithfulness even more. So people may not look at the church always at the most righteous or just people. They may not see us in an envious light. And we need to own that. And we need to pray that the Spirit would continue to be at work among us to conform us into more of that vision which God has for his people. But here's the thing. 
The church doesn't offer our righteousness to the world. We don't hold out our justice and we don't try to convince them that ours is better than theirs. But we offer Jesus to them. We offer the same Jesus, the true and perfect Israel, who is true and perfect righteousness and justice. And we constantly need him before our eyes and crying out to God that he would restore us in Jesus' image. That Jesus' attributes and his person would take precedence in over ourselves and would shine through us. People don't need us as their hope. And nor should we ourselves be attractive or pleasing or envious to them. But you know what should? Jesus, who's among us, who we need, and who's at work in us as he is at work in the world. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. And as we sing together in this communal lament, we also long together communally. And we long for Jesus Christ to come back, to come for us, and through him for the Lord then to restore all things. Let's pray. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Lord, we are a people who are broken in various states. We are a people who are sinful down to our very cores. And we are a people who are desperate, in desperate need. In fact, all of these things, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our desperation are beyond even what we can know or even what we can fathom. But you know, Lord God, you know how deep our our plea really must go. You know how deep all of this is. And so when we pray and we ask that you would shine your favor upon us, shine your face upon us, Lord, would you shine it all the way down to the very core? Shine the favor of Jesus Christ upon us in his smiling face so that we might better bear your image. We ask that you would turn us towards you so that we might manifest your name and all of your attributes better to the world of darkness. And that through us, through your work in us, the world might better see your glory and your beauty. Father, as we come now to the the table that is set before us week after week, because we need it week after week, prepare our hearts to receive Jesus given to us once more. We pray this in his name. Amen.